girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello, and welcome to episode 120 of the Christian Feminist Podcast on Nora Ephron's romantic comedy classic, You've Got Mail. I'm Katie Grubbs, and with me today are Sarah Clooster and Marie Haas. Hi, Sarah and Marie. Hi. Um, we're going to go around quickly and introduce ourselves. Um, why don't you start, Marie? Hi, thanks. So I'm Marie. I'm a regular panelist on the show. I have a PhD in literature and an MDiv, and I'm currently living in Connecticut with my spouse, Jonathan, and our 11-month-old son. And um, I do have a taste for romantic comedies, so I'm glad to do this episode. Sarah, how about you? Hi, my name is Sarah Kluster, and I'm a librarian uh, living, working, and researching at Abilene, Texas. And I am, I love this movie. Uh, it's probably one of my favorite rom-coms of the modern era. And yeah, just very excited to talk about it today. Thanks. I'm Katie Grubbs, and I am an adjunct professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. Um, I'm also a Bible study teacher at my church. So uh, this semester I've been teaching my online classes, but I've also been um, teaching a, a new Bible study class that I've been very excited about, about women throughout church history. So that's been super fun. And uh, I'm married to David Grubbs of the Christian Humanist Podcast, and we have four children together. And that's, I spend most of my time caring for them. Um, so I want to talk for just a second about why I chose this topic. Um, originally, I had put something else into the slot on the schedule, listeners, um, but it was uh, a topic that was going to prove too arduous for preparation for um, for the anybody else who signed up to do this with me um, related to some of that stuff from my Bible study class. So um, Victoria, I think it was Victoria, suggested to me, well, you know, this, um, this episode's going to post about a week after Valentine's Day, why don't you talk about a romantic comedy? Uh, and that I thought that was a fantastic idea. Um, and so uh, the three of us on the episode today kind of talked through some options. And um, in the end, I chose You've Got Mail um, because we all have uh, some really positive things about feelings about this movie. And uh, to be fair, it's considered one of the most uh, popular of all time. I, I read an article yesterday that was a, a kind of um, list of the 25 best romantic comedies as ranked by Vanity Fair and the way they did it is they kind of pulled everyone all the editors in every department not just film or whatever and asked everyone to make their personal list of 25 best romantic comedies and then in a kind of big meeting compared all of the lists and you know saw which ones got the most votes and anyway as a result of all that process at least on the Vanity Fair list their number one was When Harry Met Sally and their number two was You've Got Mail <laughs> so um, a lot of Nora Ephron love um, and before we uh, before we talk through some more uh, nuts and bolts factual background of this movie um, we just I wanted us all to go real more fast and just kind of give a little bit more specifics of uh, when we first saw this movie, how we felt about it, you know, um, uh, maybe in brief, uh, what we love about it. So, um, Sarah, why don't you go first on that? Well, I remember seeing this for the first time in theaters, so I probably would have been like 12, 13 or so when it came out. And I think that was really a perfect age for it uh, because there's all of this kind of ability to kind of look forward um, and this is kind of like how Saved by the Bell was like, oh, this is what high school is going to be like, right? Um, I had this sense of like, oh, this is what like life in the 30s is going to be like, that I like reading books. So I'm going to go to a bookstore and I'm going to live in the city. And it just had this wonderful sense of like something that I could actually do be that kind of thing. You know, the main character of Kathleen is, I think, kind of malleable enough that it's easy to see yourself in her. Like, if you like reading, you can see yourself as Kathleen, right? Um, and so it's very easy to kind of 
it was at least easy for me as a kid to see this and appreciate it. And also the other thing that I think was really great about it is unlike some newer stuff, there's, there's not a lot of cursing in it. I think there's only one time where Tom Hanks says the S word and that may be it. And, and though clearly the adults uh, in the, in the movie are having sexual relationships with their partners, we don't actually see anything, right? Like we just see a kiss here or there, or we see someone get into bed and like the lights go off or, and so it was also felt very clean. And so that was also something that meant, oh, I could watch it very easily throughout like high school and everything without feeling the guilt that like, oh, I'm watching a movie that maybe I shouldn't the way, unlike something like Bridget Jones, was, which was also a romantic comedy, but definitely did not have that clean feel to it. Thanks. Um, no, that makes perfect sense. Um, how about you, Marie? Yeah, I think I first saw it in high school um, on VHS, uh, and um, it, it's been one of my favorite, like, go-to feel-good movies since then. I remember it being, like, a staple of high school sleepovers. You would watch, you know, You've Got Mail or um, maybe Ever After or something like that. And I think the, the sort of cleanness that you mentioned was, is also a part of that. Uh, when I was re-watching the movie yesterday in preparation, my husband told me, oh, in my MK school, where I went to high school, like this was a missionary kid is MK, sorry, where I went to high school, uh, You've Got Mail was one of the like three movies we were allowed to watch at the school because <laughs> it is <laughs> clean. So uh, I agree with that <laughs> as part of its appeal in high school. Um, I also first saw this movie in high school um, in the theater. I think it came out my freshman year of high school. Um, and so really right around the age when I would have maybe been even more, you know, kind of making my own choices about what movies I might see in the theater. It was kind of the first kind of it, it became a, a popular movie around the time I started actually, you know, maybe working a little bit part time and making my own money and going to the you know movies without my parents and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, we would watch it sleepovers and things like you said, but also because as we've all said, this movie is a pretty straightforwardly clean movie in terms of nudity and language. This was a huge favorite in my household, the Norman house. My mom and dad were very strict when I was a kid as far as what we were allowed to watch and not watch, but this movie was totally allowed because, you know, of all the reasons we just said. I'm pretty sure it's rated PG, actually. Um, like Sarah said, there's one scene, really, with profanity, and that's, you know, kind of it. I mean, so we were allowed to watch it, and we did. We watched it all the time because um, we were all kind of I have I have a brother and a sister very close to my age and then we have a much younger brother so we were kind of all you know middle school and high school aged at the same time and our littlest brother was way too little anyway like so we you know we watched it all the time as a whole family because we were all old enough to understand the plot elements and um, so we watched it together all the time we quoted it all the time my sister and I used to say to each other all the time this place is a tomb I'm going to the nut shop where it's fun or, you know, just quoted other random lines from the movie. So it was a huge, a huge favorite. And uh, we would also watch it in the car because when I was in high school, we lived in Arkansas. My immediate family lived in Arkansas, but all of our extended family lived in Georgia. And so we made that drive about once every eight weeks. Um, and so we had one of those little TVs with the VHS player in the tiny TV. I don't know if you guys remember that because this was like the late 90s. And so we would watch it on that tiny TV in the car with other movies. Um, our, our rotation of kind of clean movies that older kids would enjoy was like, you've got mail and that thing you do. And maybe my big frat Greek wedding, also a great romantic comedy. So, um, also I have a complicated relationship with romantic comedies. I don't like most of them. Um, and generally the more sappy, the more I'm not going to be here for it, which is another reason I like this movie because it's really a quite, a quite witty film that um, does not really dabble as much in sentimentality. So that's another reason I think I enjoy it. Um, we're going to go into our knowing section now and give some background. And we've kind of split it up. So first I'm going to talk about some background on the story that this film is based on because it's an adaptation. Um, Sarah is going to give us some background about Nora Ephron and her work. And then Marie's going to give us a little bit of a, a brief plot summary for anyone who's never seen the film. Um, if there are any such people, but you might be out there. So we're going to do that. Um, so just to give a, a little bit of a background of the story of You've Got Mail and mainly that this is a story that's been adapted many times. Um, so it started its life as a 
1937 Hungarian play, and I'm going to butcher this Hungarian, so I'm sorry, any listeners of Hungarian extraction. Um, the original title of the play was Ilatszertar, um, which usually the title you see is Parfumery, um, because it's uh, about a perfume shop. Um, by Miklos Laszlo. Um, the play is set in Budapest, and it's about um, two co-workers, really, who hate each other at work, but are also writing each other letters. Um, th- they have connected as pen pals um, uh, through a kind of Lonely Hearts pen pal situation. And that was the original story. Well, very soon after the play was written, the play debuted in 1937, and Laszlo actually immigrated to the United States. So by 1940... The, the story had become The Shop Around the Corner, which is a famous uh, film uh, directed by Ernst Lubitsch, starring Margaret Sullivan and Jimmy Stewart. Um, and that movie retains a lot of elements of the original play in that the film takes place in Budapest, even though everyone's speaking English. Everyone has um, Hungarian names, and it takes place in Budapest. Um, they're still co-workers in a store. Um, in that case, it's a leather goods shop, not a perfume shop. Um, and many of the elements in You've Got Mail, um, a lot of them are coming from that 1940 film. And actually, if you pay close attention to the credits of You've Got Mail, it says at the beginning that it's partially based on the shop around the corner as based on the play by Miklas Laszlo. <laughs> Both are mentioned. Um, the scene uh, where Meg Ryan's character is sick, very sick, and he visits her in her apartment, that's taken from the original. Um, and there are lots of other things. Um, the scene where um, Dave Chappelle's character is peeking in the window for Joe Fox to get a look at this girl that he's going to meet in person for the first time, and he, sa- and he realizes that it's this hated person, <laughs> um, this person he doesn't like, and kind of relays that information to him. That is almost shot for shot, the same as in the 1940 movie. So um, that is really, and that's why her shop is called The Shop Around the Corner. So if you didn't know any of that, that the, the, You've Got Mail has a lot of connections with The Shop Around the Corner. Um, nine years after that, the, uh, the story became a musical film called In the Good Old Summertime, starring Judy Garland and Van Johnson. Um, that, and the story morphs a little more, and that version, the action actually gets moved to Chicago. So it's not in Budapest anymore, it's in Chicago, but they're still co-workers in a store. Um, and in both, um, in both the 1940 movie and the 1949 film, I believe, but I, I have to, I have to look back at this. Um, the, the, the girl character gets her job in the shop by proving that she's a really good saleswoman. Um, and, uh, so that's, that's kind of an element you don't see in You've Got Mail. She proves herself and then becomes part of the same organization as the male character. Um, and then the final instantiation of the story before You've Got Mail was a 1963 Broadway stage musical called She Loves Me, which is very much beloved. Um, in that musical... The actions move back to Budapest. Um, it's musical, like the Judy Garland film, but has way more songs because it's a Broadway musical. Um, you know, the music is, is a lot more central even in, than in the Judy Garland film. Um, and that movie was a huge hit. In that Broadway musical, the action is moved back to Budapest. Um, and so it kind of gets back around a little bit to the original. One of the most interesting things I found out about that musical is that it was revived in 2016. And when it was, it was actually the first Broadway musical to be live streamed, which I thought was super interesting. So um, this is a story that's been around for a long time in many different versions. Every version up to You've Got Mail involved anonymous letter writing. And then in You've Got Mail, it becomes emailing. But we'll, we'll talk about all that. Marie will give us all that in the plot summary. So now that I've kind of given some story background, Sarah, why don't you give us a little bit about Nora Ephron and her work? Because she's really the person who gave birth to You've Got Mail. So uh, Nora Ephron is most famously known for the two movies, You've Got Mail and Sleepless in Seattle. Obviously, kind of, if we're thinking of that 90s era rom-com, like, gold standard rate. And When Harry uh, Met Sally. That's the other big one. Is and When Harry, Harry Met Sally. Met Sally. Yeah. But she didn't direct Harry Met Sally. She only wrote that one. Oh, uh, you're right. I forgot that. Yeah, That's Rob right. Yeah, Rob Reiner directed uh, When Harry Met Sally, but she uh, wrote and directed Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail. Uh, Nora uh, is born to a Jewish family from the Upper West Side. Everything I've read about her talked about how she was very much like fully a Jewish woman that she really considered like that to be part of who she was. Her family moved out to LA for a little while, um, but she basically constantly wanted to move back. She graduated from Wellesley uh, with a degree in political science, 
and then spent the first about 20 years or so of her career as a journalist. First, she worked at a couple of places and uh, she worked at Newsweek, but they wouldn't actually let her write copies. She was only allowed to be like a mail carrier, a mail girl. Um, and so then she worked at a couple of other places. I believe she worked at the New York Post for several years. She moved into magazine writing for a little while. And she actually only moved into screenwriting because when she had her first child, she realized she couldn't really be a reporter and raise this child because she would be sent for a month or two on an assignment somewhere. And so her thought was, well, it'll be easier to be a screenwriter because I can actually stay home with this child at this typewriter. Um, so her first film that she wrote is Silkwood, a starred Meryl Streep. Um, she was nominated for an Oscar for best screenplay for that. Um, her big breakthrough of course is when Harry met Sally. And again, that with the, um, the famous uh, scene with uh, Meg Ryan, which also had Meg Ryan where she's faking an orgasm. Um, and I believe that was Nora Ephron's idea. And then she talks about how she kind of decided to go into directing because she wanted more power to protect the scripts that she had written, which I find really funny. So at her heart, she's still like really very much like a writer because she's, I'm going into directing to make sure that my script is not messed with by someone else. Um, and so she was nominated for an Oscar for a best uh, screenplay for um, Sleepless in Seattle. Um, You've Got Mail, this is the third Tom Hanks Meg Ryan movie together. So, of course, they were in Sleepless in Seattle in 1993, which I have to say, I have memories of my mother, like, really loving that movie, but not really getting it myself. Like, watching it being like, I'm not sure why these people like each other so much. They've never met. And just in, like, my 10-year-old brain, thinking that this didn't make no sense. And then Meg Ryan and uh, Tom Hanks, their first movie together was Joe versus the Volcano, which I had never heard of, or I'd heard of, but I'd never watched because it sounded completely ridiculous. So when I looked up a brief summary, like, yeah, it's pretty dumb, sounded pretty ridiculous. I'm trying to think if there's anything else for her. Uh, I know we'll talk a little bit later, but she really does have a love for New York. She wrote very closely with her sisters who would help her write together and so this her whole it's really this very much of a family affair when she is creating some of these stories especially some of the later ones oh and she is apparently one of the very few people who knew the um identity of deep throat from the watergate scandal so very interesting whoa i had i didn't know that that's kind of incredible um thank you so much that's a great kind of rundown um and uh, just to give us some idea of where uh, where her heart was when she was making the movie. And, you know, um, it, the movie's been called A Love Letter to New York City. So thank you for letting us know what her connections to that place are, because that's a big deal. Uh, Marie, why don't you give us the story real fast for anybody who still is a You've Got Mail uh, neophyte? Sure thing. So in You've Got Mail, we have Meg Ryan's Kathleen Kelly. She's the owner of a children's bookstore in New York. The store is named Shop Around the Corner as a reference to the 1940 film that you just talked about. Um, and opposite her, we have Tom Hanks as Joe Fox, who's opening this mega bookstore, Fox Books, that will put Shop Around the Corner out of business. Um, after the two meet in a chat room, they've been corresponding with each other online. It's on AOL, we see very prominently a lot of times on the screen. Um, they've been corresponding as Shop Girl and as NY152 without knowing each other's real life identities. And they're deeply drawn to each other despite being in other relationships. When they do meet by chance, still without realizing that this is who they've been writing to, they have this instant connection, but that turns almost at once into this love-hate dynamic as soon as Kathleen realizes that Joe is the one who's opening Fox Books. Then there's a lot of fun irony as NY152 urges Shopgirl to you know, defend her business, go to the mattresses, uh, with Joe not knowing that he's telling Kathleen to fight you know, himself. 
Joe's the first one to realize that this business enemy is his internet soulmate. Um, that's when Shop Girl and NY152 decide to meet in real life, and Joe arrives at the cafe and sees that Kathleen is the woman who's carrying the book that they've chosen to identify themselves to each other, which is very fittingly Pride and Prejudice. Um, Joe doesn't let her know that he's NY152, though. Before we get that revelation to her in just the final moments of the film, we have a bunch of other things happen. Kathleen closes the shop around the corner and makes plans to write children's books. Kathleen and Joe shed their superfluous significant others, who are the technophobic columnist Frank and the shallow publisher Patricia. And Joe pursues Kathleen by befriending her in real life in an attempt to get her forgiveness for putting her out of business. Uh, by the time that shop girl and NY152 finally do arrange to actually meet, it's become clear that for Kathleen, Joe has become this serious rival for NY152, so it ends up being this all-around happy ending that, of course, they are the same person, and that's the um, the joyful ending of the film. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, so what we're going to do now is just, we're just, we're our only reading. We, you know, we talk about our reading section, so we're going to move in there now, but um, this week our only reading and scare quotes, cause it's not a text, um, not a written text is this film. So we're just going to kind of go through and um, talk about some different big ideas that are happening in this film um, beyond just the, the kind of romantic aspect. Um, and I want to go right to, because, especially because you mentioned it, Marie, the huge, huge placement of AOL in this movie. So the technological yeah. landscape of this film is so very dated now. It's really funny to watch it now and think about that time. Um, so my first question, uh, ladies, is are there, are there any aspects of that part of the story, technological aspects, that do still work today? Is it just this museum piece? Or are there any issues of technology in the movie that we feel like are still applicable for, for viewers today? Well, I will say that this is a movie that I, I had not watched probably about, probably about four years. And so I hadn't watched it since I had met my husband and we had met online, right? And we had been emailing each other. And so you kind of have this sense of like, that seemed very normal to me because that's how Andy and I met. And so, you know, they're sending each other like little witty like banter about like their day and all this. Now, obviously he and I were meeting met via match. So that's what we were actually meaning to do. But still some of it felt very similar of the, like you're reading the email and then you're going about your day in a happy frame of mind. Like, so some of that like really fits um, to me. I would say obviously AOL, like nobody uses AOL at all anymore. And in fact, sometimes at work or something, if I'll see someone who will have, still have like an AOL email address and I just sit here and be like, like, what is wrong with you? Like, why? Like, there's this thing called Google. Like, let's 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 move on with our lives. And <laughs> obviously, there's a lot of stuff that's different now because you know we have texting, right? Like, and so if this were happening now, like all of this would be happening via texting. My personal opinion that if if we we're absolutely remaking this now, is that it would probably happen instead of being through. They wouldn't have met online through a chat room because nobody does chat rooms anymore. What would have happened is they both would have had like anonymous Twitter profiles, right? And they would have like commented and they would have been each other's like all up in each other's comments. And then they would, as the phrase goes, they would have slid into each other's DMs. And then like, maybe <laughs> I love that. they would I love have like, that. <laughs> and like one of them would be like, and they would, they would probably have to be, instead of being like rival businesses, maybe they would be like, one would be a Republican and one would be a Democrat or something, right? Oh my gosh, Sarah, I'm so glad you said that because when I was reading through some oral histories about the movie and some interviews and stuff, um, I actually saw this interview where Delia Efron said that that she and, and Nora, kind of as a shorthand way of describing this movie, s asked the question, can you fall in love with a Republican? That was like how they <laughs> framed the film, which is hilarious. Um, and it lives on in that, that conversation that she has with Frank when she asks, is she a Republican? But I, you're absolutely right. I do think that that, that, that political kind of um, the valence would absolutely be a part of it today. Well, and the other thing I kept thinking, and this took my husband and I like three and a half hours to watch this movie, because since I was trying to think about it critically, we kept pausing about it to talk about it. Uh, one of the things that, 
at least I thought is, so if this movie comes out in like 1997, right? If this movie was made like 12 years later, one, it would be flipped because the big box store, right, is going to be going out of business from this newfangled thing called the Amazon, right? Oh, yeah. And you would actually, it would probably be easier to be the quirky little store because now we have hipsters, right? And hipsters are all obsessed about paying more and like, I'll wait 15 minutes for my cup of coffee and pay $8 for it because it was made by hand with the roast, you know, you get all of that kind of stuff. And so I think it would, again, it would be very different if it had been made just a little bit later. <laughs> yeah, I bet that Joe Fox goes out of business and he and Kathleen end up opening the shop around the corner together. <laughs> yeah, I think that, that's, that's the thing yeah. that happens in like 15 years. Because what ends up, because the other, the other thing that you have, and I, this probably is a little bit uh, into some of the other questions, but like Kathleen is not an entrepreneur, right? Like she's kind of given this business by her mother and she really, she holds on to it as a relationship and the connection to her mother, who's obviously very meaningful to her. The only biological family she has, right? We never hear a mention of a father. She has no siblings. There's no mention of cousins, aunts, anything, right? So she just has this connection with her mother, but she doesn't really like the business aspect of it, right? Like she doesn't like the numbers. She doesn't do any of that. In fact, we don't even really see her handling that. We just see the character, of her mother's friend Bertie doing all of that. What we see Kathleen doing is all the front-facing reading, interacting with company, company, uh, customers. She's doing a lot of the sales aspect, but a lot of like the business planning, that entrepreneurial spirit kind of thing. Like she, that does not actually seem to be a thing she's interested in or really wants to do. Yeah, um, I, I think I think that you're right about that. Um, and, you know, we can let's go ahead and um, we can talk about that for a minute. I mean, is there anything else related to the kind of the business aspect of the movie? If you guys want to talk about that now, that was one of my questions, but that's a great point. And something that I was thinking last night and that I remember thinking the last time I watched this movie that never occurred to me when I was like a teenager watching it is that in some ways to me, Kathleen's character comes off as a little bit hypocritical because she's really upset about a big business putting her out of business. On the other hand, this is a person who has no problem buying all of her coffee at Starbucks. And that's frustrating for me as an adult. I saw that. I saw that last night Mm -hmm. and I was like, Oh my gosh, they're making all this stuff about it. And like Starbucks has like ruined how many small coffee shops and like, yes. Like why is Kathleen not, why is she not getting her coffee at an independent coffee shop on the Upper West Side, which you know, there probably must, must have been like, so, and and I, and I know that I've read some things that, that one of the reasons that Starbucks is featured so prominently in the movie, I'm sure is product placement, but also um, the, the whole Joe's whole kind of disquisition about Starbucks that it lets you be, if you're a person with no decision-making ability whatsoever, it lets you walk in and make five decisions to order coffee and produces this sense of self that, you know, they, I remember in the DVD commentary, maybe they said that Nora had all these thoughts about Starbucks, right? Cause she was also an essayist. And I think you see that in the movie too. You know, I think that she had these thoughts about Starbucks and what it does for people or how it functions in their lives. And so she put them into the movie, but the effect to me is that it makes Kathleen look like a person who doesn't really care that much about big business. And it's, sometimes insidious effects until it affects her personally. <laughs> and then, and then she's like, hold on, you're putting my store out of business. Now we're going to go to the mattresses. Like they say in the movie. Um, so that's a little bit, that's a little bit frustrating um, to me. I don't know. Was there anything else about the business stuff? Marie, did you have anything on that before we move on to a different idea? Um, not about the business stuff. I mean, it does seem super nostalgic now that we have that the big threat is this brick and mortar store. That's like this big Guggenheim of stores. Like that's it's so big. So <laughs> strange to think of now. Um, but, uh, about the, the technological, uh, aspects of the film, I think something that's still relevant is, um, the, the theme they have going on throughout of this tension between technophobia and its opposite, like Eddie Izzard says, techno joy. Um, I, we've still got that kind of tension, I think, uh, going on though. We've shifted, I think, to a, a much less positive kind of optimistic moment when it comes to the internet and the power of technology over our lives um because we now now have a lot more concern with like all pervasive surveillance and manipulation fake news pernicious virality and that kind of thing um but uh that that kind of tension between those two poles is still going on i think absolutely i think the more the more years go by the more sympathetic frank seems to be 
with his yeah you you think this machine's your friend but it's not like and i i i love i have a soft spot for frank as a character because in some ways he reminds me of my husband and i mean that in a complimentary way (laughs) um david grubbs but um but he um because in some ways i i sympathize with him i i am in some ways very luddite myself um the most obvious example of that is that i do not have a smartphone my husband and i don't have smartphones purposely um and people my students wig out whenever i show them my phone which flips open listeners i have a flip phone when i show it to my (laughs) students they think that they think that i'm joking they think it's like a prop that i brought in um so i can appreciate his desire to um to kind of cling to a less technological past because of some of the because of so many of the negative things that come um, you know, he talked in the movie, he mentions this line about, you know, people at work having to have solitaire taken off their computers because they hadn't done any work. Well, now you would just substitute in everyone's favorite social media sites for that. But it's the same thing. And there are so many other opportunities to be distracted now all online that I think his uh, a lot of the things he says in the movie are more uh, maybe feel a little more uh prescient uh than they did even at the time when it was like you know the dawn of the internet age and everybody was feeling psyched about it um well let's talk for a second um we we mentioned at the top um that this is a uh a very famous example of the romantic comedy genre and so let's talk about the genre for a minute um and kind of what tropes of the genre does this movie fit are there any ways that breaks or subverts the the tropes of the genre and i know marie you had some really um some really good thoughts about that so why don't you start us off in that area well i was thinking more about like the genre of romantic comedy in general as i was watching this and trying to figure out like how does it fit the genre and so on so i think when it comes to uh fitting the genre for this movie i I would say it would be safe to say that subversion is not the name of the the game here it's like pretty firmly in the romantic comedy genre um but i was sort of thinking about how the what you have is a large-scale like structure movement of romantic comedy it has a sort of parallel or maybe it's kind of a reverse or mirror image in the the large-scale structure or movement that you get in a certain kind of horror movie um because both are you have this kind of zooming in narrowing down from anonymity and broadness to something that becomes sort of more closer and more constrained following this inevitable trajectory to in romantic comedy you have the single person in the world who fills your heart with joy um or in horror you have death so there's this inevitable ends and i mean think of it in romantic comedy you start out with the protagonists all afloat in a sea of people and their choices could be endless in their freedom you have meg ryan and tom hanks passing each other on the streets of new york and then there's the joyful fraught process of finding each other and the whole movie continues the zooming in that starts in the outer solar system in the opening credits and they're just uh, circling around each other narrowing in meeting and ricocheting and returning and finally joining their lives in this intimacy of their like intense knowledge of each other so that's romantic comedy and and the kind of horror i'm thinking about like at the start it feels like there's this freedom and choice and anonymity like you could leave this interesting rickety old mansion that you arrive at in the daylight at any time right or there's maybe like one zombie lurching around in the distance but that's not a big threat there's lots of people around you could get lost in the crowd the monster might not get you but then things start narrowing down you get locked in passages are blocked off and you end up facing the monster alone in this you know cramped room or dark basement and i think whether the protagonist dies or not in that scenario like that's that that horror movement is kind of a, a, a it's looking at death sometimes the, the idea of death right like slowly life is narrowing down and um your possibilities are cut off and your senses darken into this pinpoint and then it's done and So it's like romantic comedy and horror are taking this same kind of inevitable funneling from broadness and anonymity into this intense intimacy of either love or death and looking at it differently and using it differently. But it's so familiar in each case, you know, that's because it's a genre. So we can slip into the stories at once like these like old shoes. So. That's, that's making me wonder, thinking about like the shapes or the movements of narratives 
what would it be? And I know this is kind of off topic for <laughs> uh, for talking about this movie, but what would it be if if you would, were to think of like the shape of the Christian narrative of life? Like, what would that look like if there is one? Because I mean, in romantic comedy and horror, you you chop up these subsections of human life relating to like love and death, and you cram them into these particular shapes. But then, but what about if you're thinking about like all of a person's existence from a Christian perspective? Because sometimes I think we can tell a story about a person's life in terms of like the relationship with Christ using this kind of romantic comedy trajectory because it's useful and familiar. And I think, um, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I think it's a, a good thing to apply this trajectory. Uh, and you have the testimony story being sort of ineluctably drawn into relationship and um, that's where the story sort of culminates at that like point of narrowness you know praying the prayer being saved and so on but like what would what does existence itself look like uh, beyond that like would it have more of a widening out kind of trajectory or shape if we're, we're like giving a shape to the Christian life, like moving from this cramped individualism into the communion of saints, this wideness that's beyond love and death, but still it's not anonymous in God. Um, or, you know, maybe it's wrong to just try to think of uh, the individual human life in this uh, sense. Anyway, maybe, maybe we should be thinking more generally about like the shape of the trajectory of all of creation like, what is the Christian shape of the uh, divine comedy? <laughs> I don't have an answer, but it's just sort of uh, where thinking about romantic comedy uh, led me. No, I, th- I think that's fascinating. And, and in terms of the shape, I, I like what you said about a kind of meeting Christ and then having this widening because you become part of the community of the saints and part of the church. But I think that, and maybe this is just because I'm an early modernist, so I'm super, super steeped in that kind of way of thinking about death. But I think that probably I would say that it, it the shape of the Christian life might be a widening, but then a, a, another contraction or a narrowing as you approach death. Because in the early modern period, the way they very much thought about it is that, you know, every person in the moment of death is alone, you know, um, with God. It's you and God. And that was why you needed to get your soul right. And, um, and you needed to be ready to... Um, assume that afterlife with God without encumbrance, which is why, at least in the medieval period and into the Renaissance period, a lot of times people would choose their deathbed uh, attendants. The deathbed, you know, now we always we all want to be surrounded by our closest family members when we die. But back then, um, people would purposely have deathbed attendants who weren't close relatives. They would pick like work colleagues or um, acquaintances. Because the idea was that if you were surrounded by your most loved people when you were dying, you would want to stay, not go. And so it was a very deliberate narrowing and stripping away of every intimacy except the intimacy with God. And so I kind of feel like, I, I think it's interesting too, what you said, comparing that, the idea of, of kind of a horror genre and um, a romantic comedy genre and the different, the, the, that playing with wide versus narrow, the intimacy of a romantic relationship, but also the weird, creepy intimacy of, you know, the moment of someone being killed or something like that. I think all of that is interesting stuff, which, and I, I will say, um, one of the only things I think, um, about this movie that does maybe subvert some of the romantic comedy tropes, and I can't claim credit for this. This is actually something that Delia Efron has said, not yet said about the movie, but she kind of made the point that they thought of it as slightly unusual because when the movie begins, the, this, the, the central couple, they're already in love. Right. Like in most romantic comedies, the the you know, people are, are finding their way into the relationship. But this movie begins with Joe and Kathleen already in love. The problem is that they don't know who they are. They don't know who each of them doesn't know who the other person is. So the love is already there. It's the identities and the relationships and all that other stuff that then has to kind of fall into place. And I found that interesting. I actually one of the reasons I like this movie is because it's um, it's such an ensemble movie and you really feel that because for most of the movie you see them interact as much with the various people in their separate lives as you do as as they do with each other and I appreciate that Um, my least favorite romantic comedies are ones that almost exclusively focus on the central couple and just seem to throw up endless random obstacles that don't even seem that logical just to keep them from getting together until the end of the two hours kind of thing yeah yeah that's the boring kind my, my least favorite romantic uh and that, which they don't do in this one, thank goodness. But my least favorite romantic uh, rom-com movie, like, 
trope is the like the mad dash to the airport that like because wherever you're going they don't have telephones right you can't call them <laughs> in 10 yeah. hours to be like hey i want to apologize for being a jerk to you this this and this i'm so sorry let me come see you and we, like that is a physical impossibility right like apparently they're going to meet the next love of their life on that plane and you are just going to be screwed <laughs> because yeah we always have this mad dash like grand proposal or a grand gesture and that never works and you know in real life there's no way that that ever actually works out well or like people like people are beating up tsa people to like run through it i guess you can't really do that i haven't seen that recently because of course you can't even get like within a mile and a half of the airport now if you don't already have a ticket so the ability to do that has really changed one of the things i felt the tropes that i felt this uh movie really subverted was instead of him rescuing her right he kind of ruins her right he ruins her business he initially yeah. makes her life much worse and again as mm -hmm. he keeps saying it's not personal to him and so you have this idea of like he is very much a businessman he is not personal to him it is business but because she this shop is this connection with her mother this is the definition of personal because it's like she says it right it's like he has killed her mother a second time because this connection that she had to her mother is lost. I also think uh, it's interesting what you said, Katie, is that, yeah, they're definitely in love at the beginning of the movie. They're definitely already basically emotionally cheating on the other person. But the thing that's kind of funny is we don't mind because both the people they're with are kind of jerks. And so you had to make sure that, like, the people they were with were were at least especially for the Parker Posey character very unlikable because we're all we're gonna like Meg Ryan so her 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 first significant other can be a little more likable right but you know nobody is going to countenance Tom Hanks basically having an emotional affair with someone else unless that woman is just the worst woman in the world and the Parker Posey character is kind of that way right like, she's incredibly selfish. Um, she only thinks of herself. She, and I mean, and that may, again, be what is necessary to succeed in this very high-paced New York publishing world. But it's not really, I think, somebody who you would want to ha have as, like, a long-term partner. Um, and you also have to, you have to have Tom Hanks as this guy because he's the most likable man in America, still is. Because anyone else would come off just as a huge, unsympathetic jerk playing this role. And so you have to have mm -hmm. this kind of natural charm of Tom Hanks for you to just not absolutely hate him just by definition because he's Mr. Business, right? It's interesting to me, which, and, and I, one of the other questions I want to talk about is, are there parts of the story we would consider problematic? And I think we're already there. Because I think, to me, watching it now, I, I told David last night, because, Sarah, we kept pausing it, too, just like you said. Even though I've seen this movie a million times, I felt the need to pause to give him my commentary, so then I didn't miss the next part. Um, but, to me, what comes off the worst, in some ways, at the beginning of this movie is... I don't know what you would call it, the New York publishing dating scene or something. It doesn't really make sense to me that they're both in these relationships that seem super, not even unsatisfying, just like they don't seem to, you know, they don't seem to care about that much about the person they're with. You know, like when she says, oh yeah, I'm in love with Frank. Like she'd forgotten about it. Like, but he doesn't seem, and that's the thing too, is he doesn't seem to feel like he's passionately in love with her either. So we don't really know why they're in this relationship that's so close that they're almost living together because they, they, they really seem to be more than friends. And their breakup is very amicable. And, you know, my sister called it loving, and she's not wrong about that. You know, they immediately shift seamlessly into being friends because really they were more like friends the whole time. But at the same time, you know, I, but I think that their relationship has to be that way. If he was passionately, if Frank was passionately attached to Kathleen and she did all of the things that she does in the movie, we would think she was a horrible person because she's having an emotional affair with a stranger mm -hmm. online. And so the only way, like you said, Sarah, the only way he works is if he's Tom Hanks. To me, the only way she works is because Frank doesn't seem, he seems like, you know, he's doing his thing. <laughs> and I mean, you know, like you said, sometimes he seems kind of jerky. To me, he seems more like just a guy who is very much enamored of his own writing and his own art, <laughs> his own, you know, stuff that he's making. And he's interested in her, but she's not what's giving him meaning in his life, right? 
he's finding his self-worth in his writing. And so when she, you know, when their relationship ends, he's fine with it. And, and, and actually the person he seems like he wants to start up a relationship with after is a person who seems super into his work and him as a person. I just find that kind of interesting. And yeah, Patricia's kind of terrible. I also low-key have a little bit of a love for Patricia, though, because she, um, she, because she has this enormous energy and, you know, she, she seems like, at least to Joe Fox, that she can be quite nice. But I think they make her progressively less likable as the movie goes on so that you feel better and better about the fact that he's basically cheating with online Meg Ryan. Um, and she reaches her pinnacle in the elevator scene. When you, you know, she's in a moment of stress, you see really, really just how terrible she is, right? Any veneer of civility with her is just gone. Um, but uh, anyway. Yeah, I have to I have to admit, when I was watching it this time, I was actually liking Patricia a lot more than any other time. I mean, for one thing, just because it's Parker Posey, but also <laughs> because, like, she's not really doing anything concretely, like, horrible or wrong to be painted as some sort of monster that gives a, a license to um her, her boyfriend cheating on her like because she she like misreads the tones of some conversations in laughable ways um and uh but she's really like not really too unlikable actually and it's not such a horrible sin to want tic tacs in an elevator is it i mean it's, <laughs> it makes sense <laughs> you're trapped in an elevator you want tic tacs like <laughs> but and it's also i was thinking about you have this supremely amical breakup between frank and kathleen that we see which is just this fantasy of the ideal breakup but we don't have the corresponding scene for patricia and joe and that just leaves you wondering like what does a story look like from her perspective i think if we had that scene it might make it might paint joe as less sympathetic and that's why we don't have that i mean that makes perfect sense i never thought about that but you're right because we literally never see her again after that She's just yeah, I mean, gone. presumably she got the apartment because he's in the boat after that. But yeah, <laughs> I know. Well, and I I was thinking last night too that she's interesting to me too because you know, and I told David this last night. Kathleen's apartment is like the perfect girly apartment. Like everything's flowered and be ruffled and you know and all the colors are pastel and it's all so girly and I always assumed even as a teen like you just said that Joe was living with Patricia right because he ends up on the boat right if it's his apartment he's not going to get kicked out of his own apartment but then if you look at the apartment that he shares with her it's very masculine in the way that like it's very much a contrast to Kathleen's apartment it's straight lines leather like everything looks more masculine mm -hmm. so so if that is patricia's apartment then i think that that codes her as a more masculine figure and i think that's absolutely right if you mm -hmm. she she has this very assertive energy and she very much reads as more masculine than kathleen who's like all pastel colors and ruffles and like you know patricia is the kind of woman who's wearing all black red lipstick you know super straight perfect hair and you know and she she's the kind of person who thinks says things like murray chilton died so that's one less person i'm not speaking to like, you know, she kind of has this, mm -hmm. um, I don't know, this big energy. And I think that that's one of the reasons I like her as a grown-up. I think that I appreciate her assertiveness, whereas as a younger person, I think I loved Kathleen's kind of softness. As a grown-up, I think I appreciate Patricia's assertiveness a little bit more. And I mean, rather than putting putting Kathleen out of work, Patricia wants to give her a job and you know, a higher position in publishing. I mean, she's not... Um, this isn't the, the, the actions of a horrible, selfish person. <laughs> it's... No, she respects the talent, right? She, she, you know, she says, you know, she's supposed to have great taste. I think she'd be good at this job. So I think I'm going to offer her the, the job. She doesn't want to save her because her business just ended. She recognizes her as a possible asset, which is super interesting. I told my husband last night, I wonder how the other people at this literary dinner party they go to, how those people feel about Joe Fox. Because the mm. guy hosting the party says he's going to ruin everything. Right. But Patricia's brought him there. So clearly she doesn't think that she's going to be shunned for dating Joe Fox. Mm, so it's it, yeah. it's kind of an interesting world. Like, it seems like that the writers and maybe the small shop owners hate him. But, you know, Patricia's an editor, so she's in the business of books making money. Right. Yeah. She gets a cut. I so think it's, what you end up with with that is that, you know, if you're in the publishing side, you actually want him to like you because, you know, I, this movie came out about three years before we moved away from my very small town in East Texas, and we moved to a smaller city, still very small in comparison to many, but Lubbock. And we thought it was the, like, the 
we had just gone high society because they had an actual Barnes and Noble there, right? And so, which is obviously what Fox and Sons books is coded for. It's supposed to be Barnes and Noble. Um, all of the artwork at like the display of everything is just exactly like a, a big fancy Barnes Noble would be. But you know, if you're a publisher, if his, if you want something to become a bestseller, if they don't stock it, it's not going to be right. There, you're not going to have a successful best-selling paperback or anything if his bookstore that has shops, you know, in every city over 150,000 in America doesn't stock it, right? Because yeah, at this makes, point, there's obviously sense. not an Amazon yet, or it's very, very basic, and, you know, nobody knew the evil power that would grow from it. But yeah, so it makes complete sense that if you're a regular writer or if you're a publisher that like, no, no, we want them to want our books. Yeah, Amazon yeah. just went public in 97. So it was just like, it wasn't a big thing yet. <laughs> yeah. um, I think too, um, just in, in thinking about the, those particular relationships too, and I, I can't take credit for this. This is something David said last night, but I, I think he was totally right about it. As he said, you know, if you think about it, Frank and Patricia are both people who seem, you know, they both seem like the kind of narcissistic caught up in themselves person in the relationship more. And Joe and Kathleen seem like the person who is more willing to adapt, right? Or who, who's, who's kind of the person who seems to be um, the less dominant personality. I'll say it that way in the relationship, even though Joe Fox is this powerful dude, you know, she's like, you're coming to that dinner with me tonight. And he's like, do I have to go? And she's like, come on. Like, you know, she, she kind of bullies him a little bit. And so David said, maybe that's one of the things that they see, in each other, even online, meaning anonymously, is that they're able to express their true thoughts to someone who is willing to listen <laughs> and who isn't going to rush off to another meeting carrying her coffee or opine about the typewriters, right? You know, mm -hmm. I mean, even, and everybody loves the scene where he says you're a lone read, but yeah. when I watched it this time, I was like, basically what happened is she's trying to wax philosophical about her work and what it means in her life and inst and then and he talks over her and he uses his words to put a spin on the situation that sounds good to him and then he repeats it three times the sentence because he loves it so much like <laughs> that's what I saw this time and I'm like she just wanted to talk and you kind of ran over her a little bit like so anyway it's just it, it, I thought that was an interesting kind of I had never thought about that either yeah um, that seems me... making it okay that she'll lose her work but also that she'll lose him yes. <laughs> both of those. well yeah. Yes, yes. And I, I think um, and I think that they, uh, you know, I, I really like the way that they the way that they ended things with with him and Kathleen. And I think that the reason that they do it that way is because all along he's he's a little bit more likable than Patricia. And I think he and Kathleen seem like a relationship that they're I think they're mainly together because they probably have the same political viewpoints. You know, I think they probably run with the same circles. They seem like, you know, one of these relationships where people end up together more based on the things they do and the, the things they value than any personal attachment to each other as people. Um, and so I think that's another reason that, you know, viewers aren't sad when it kind of ends. Um, well, let me we're, we, we're, we don't want to run too long. So let me um, let me ask a couple just a couple more questions. Um I'm asking this question because I, I think it's fun. Who's your favorite character in the movie and why is that person your favorite? Oh, before we move on from the problematic things, so I just have to mention. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, look, viewing the movie this time, I was really struck by Jillian, the um, promiscuous bisexual stereotype who's just there for, I'm not sure exactly what for, laughs, I guess. Um, she's the partner of Joe's father who makes a pass at oh, Joe in yes. this strange, uncomfortable scene and then ends up leaving Joe's father for the nanny Marine. Um, I guess she's there to like form a contrast with the, to, to, to like the kind of relationship that Joe would want to build with Kathleen, like contrast with his father's relationships that don't last. But it's like, mm, yeah, that doesn't, that's, that did not age well. Yeah. Yeah, to me, the way that she's characterized at the beginning of the movie, you know, and particularly because his, you know, his dad mentions a previous girlfriend running off with someone or whatever, there, there's really no reason that it has to be the nanny that she runs off with. Like, she could have run off with another guy. So, yeah, it feels like a weird kind of piling of several different things onto one person, and it's it's a little bit difficult. And you're right, it makes, it, it does, I don't know, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, 
uh, okay. So um, then if that's if that's everything we're going to throw in that's... Oh, oh, no. The one other problematic thing... Thank you. I'm glad you had one more thing to say, Marie, because I forgot to say this. The one other problematic thing that I've seen people say before, and I think there's some merit for it, is a lot of people find problematic the fact that Joe figures out first who he's corresponding with, but he doesn't say anything about it. Yes. And, yeah. <laughs> and, he, and he keeps it a secret for a while as he basically tries to ingratiate himself to her before before she finds out now as the viewer it i mean it plot for plot reasons it makes perfect sense that he doesn't tell her immediately because when he finds out is at their height of the height of their hatred for each other if he told her then it would be over like the whole thing would yeah. just be over and so instead he embarks on this you know kind of um quest to redeem himself i guess you know by trying to seek her forgiveness for putting her out of business by trying to become her friend i think that's my favorite line in the movie is she says why did you come by and he says i wanted to be your friend yeah I think that's probably my favorite part of the movie because, and I, I mean, my favorite part of this movie is actually the third act when they're hanging out together as friends. I don't know why I, that's my favorite part of the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, because they're, they're kind of, he's, he's building a relationship with her that doesn't have sex or romance as a factor, right? He's building a friendship with her and yeah, it's in service of her being okay when it's revealed that the romance she's been having is with him. But I, I just, it's interesting to watch that grow. But that's one other problematic thing. Um, so listeners, if you think yeah. it's problematic that he kept the secret, you're not alone. Yeah, a lot of people think. Like, on paper, that his behavior is just, it's, you know, deceptive and manipulative and repellent. But that's why it's so important that it's Tom Hanks, because on film, it's charming. So it's just on paper. Like, you can never, some, sometimes, you know, when I watch this, I never remember that he called her a bitch at one point. Like, it's... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's Tom Hanks. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, perhaps Tom Hanks casting covers many sins. Um, Definitely. So, so, okay, so then who's your favorite character? Is it Tom or uh, Meg Ryan's characters, or is it somebody else? Mm, well, I think just this time watching it, one thing besides, besides Patricia that I noticed was I like Birdie especially, just because she's so um, quirky and seems to have such a rich history to her life. <laughs> Solid choice. How about you, Sarah? I was going to say uh, Birdie is my favorite. If I'm, I'm going to not pick one of the two main characters, Birdie's my favorite. Um, because I love, one, that she has a very rich history. I love that she is this, this you know, mother figure for Kathleen. And I love the this kind of implied very, very deep friendship that she clearly had with Kathleen's mother. Um, because I think, you know, deep women having just deep, meaningful friendships. I mean, that is a very real thing. And I love that, that, that it shows not only the influence that this woman had on her life, but, you know, through that friendship, she's still carrying on um, to help her friend's daughter. That to me, that strikes as just a very real, real thing that I see in everyday life. Thanks. I think something that hadn't occurred to me before, um, but until last night and I, so I'm going to cheat. I'm not going to say a favorite character, but I am going to say maybe a favorite relationship or something aside from the romance that's happening in this movie. One of the things that's my favorite is that you see depicted these relationships of your central couple that they, relationships they have with other people in their lives, particularly kind of father or mother figures. Right. So like you said, Sarah, you're right. Kathleen's this totally orphaned person who's kind of built a family in her shop um, and, but Birdie is like her. She says she's like her surrogate mother. So you see a lot about her relationship with Birdie. On the flip side, you get a whole lot about um, Joe's relationships with his father and his grandfather and his best friend, right? Um, and so you see him, and, and so it's almost like this weird dichotomy between what feels like a very, uh, and I'm, I'm sure they did this on purpose, what feels like a very feminine world on Kathleen's side. So she has the shop, she's got Birdie, she has the girl who works in her shop whose name I can never, Christine? Is her name Christine? I can't remember what her name is. Um, Heather Burns' character. And yeah, George is there working in the shop, but he's, you know, definitely seems like he's, um, you know, outnumbered by these women in the shop. And then on the other side, though, you've got this kind of world of Fox books where it's grandfather, father, son, you know, the women, at least in his dad's life, have been extremely transient. You know, there's no kind of mother figure in that world. There's no matriarch of Fox books. It's a very masculine world. And so, and of course, these... the, the black sidekick whose life revolves around the, the main character. 
Can't well, yeah. <laughs> I, I still can't believe they got Dave Chappelle to do the movie, but, you know, he was earlier in his fame, too. Like, you know, it wasn't, um, I don't know. Yeah, it, it's... Yeah, this it's, was before Chappelle's show. Yeah, like, it's an interesting choice, but I, I love that. And in, in some ways, I love that he's just being himself in the movie. Like, he's supposed to be Joe Fox's best friend, but, you know, um, I don't know. It's, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it, it's kind of funny. Well, And I told David, I said, I want more information about that. I want to know how Joe Fox ends up best friends with this guy. Where did they meet? What happened? You know, like, I would like to know more about their relationship and how they became uh, they became friends. But I, I, I always enjoy watching those scenes of Joe with his dad and granddad because that that kind of they clearly all have very solid relationships with each other in many ways, I think, built around the business they all own together. Um, and it's just kind of interesting. So, um, well, it's been about an hour. We probably need to move on to passing on. Um mm-hmm. So um, let's go ahead and, and let's go ahead and go there. So what are you guys recommending today? Uh, Sarah, you go first. I'm uh, going to recommend uh, Georgette Hire's Cotillion. And though it may seem a little odd to be recommending a Regency romance novel from this, the thing that it really, uh, the thing that this movie really has, I think, in common with almost all of Hire's Uh, romance novels is that one there's this it's this very light snappy dialogue it's very clean like we talked about earlier and so of almost all of Heyer's novels Cotillion is kind of like the this kind of light effervescent like cotton candy and this not that it's just overly saccharine but it's just this light sweet thing that just kind of disappears into the air um and so if you if you like a movie like this that it has you know very snappy dialogue and that is very um very austin like in the sense that it's all about manners right there's not actually a huge amount of passion going on among any of these characters it's all about the dialogue it's all about these this like these manners and how people are interacting in this very narrow white you know gentry level uh social circle right um and so you get that, and that's basically what exactly what all Regency romance novels are. And so Georgette Heyer is kind of the queen of these. And so Cotillion, I think, is a really good choice if you want to start looking into some of her stuff, because it's really, really good. Thanks. Um, that sounds awesome. Marie, how about you? Oh, I love your recommended Cotillion, because I, you know, I almost, I thought about recommending that myself, because it's like the inverse kind of plot where... Um, and you've got male, you know, they, they're in love, but they don't know it. Whereas in Cotillion, like, they have to pretend to be in love. And then, of course, inevitably, <laughs> love follows. But yeah, Georgia Hare is so great. Um, but I guess I'll recommend, I'll just go ahead and recommend Shop Around the Corner that we've been um, mentioning. Because, you know, there's nothing wrong with uh, watching Jimmy Stewart in a romantic comedy. Um, and it's a lot of fun to see what's the same, like Katie was talking about, uh, some of the scenes are a lot the same, like especially the dialogue and the, the scene where they meet in the cafe is really great. Um, now, Mr. Kralik's treatment of Miss Novak, the sort of equivalent characters, after he's realized that she's his uh, that that she's his pen pal is like even more cruel than Joe's treatment of Kathleen. So you can watch out for that. But um, it's a great film, and it's kind of interesting as a contrast to you, you've got mail in um, that it's a lot less of an idyllic kind of setting because you've got mail is just all this sunny kind of fantasy land um, where like even though the characters sort of talk about Kathleen being in trouble because she's out of work it's not it never really feels like a very big like danger or threat whereas in this bleak Budapest winter the characters are sort of barely getting by so it's a a, a much more real um, threat for them but yeah that's a fun fun film thanks um, I am also recommending a film, another romantic comedy. And actually, it's one of the films that we considered talking about for this episode, but we ultimately opted against in part because I think we would have needed to talk a lot more background about this movie for it to make sense. But what I'm recommending today is uh, Peyton Reed's film Down With Love from 2003. Um, Peyton Reed directed the film. Um, and Down With Love is a kind of pastiche of 1960s kind of um, Doris Day, Rock Hudson um, kind of bedroom comedies. Um, and it is very lovingly recreating, um, that type of film. I mean, down to things like, 
you know, um, a montage of dates happening at a variety of locations that are obviously just backgrounds. <laughs> and uh, it is meant, it's made to look like one of those old films. It's not just set in, in the 60s, but I mean, the film itself is made to look like those films down to split screenshots and the music and everything. Um, and it starred Renee Zellweger and Ewan McGregor. And it is an acquired taste. Most people, um, when the movie came out, it got mixed reviews. People either loved it or they hated it because they didn't get it. Um, but I think it's a it's a fantastic film. Um, absolutely, if you've seen some of those older comedies. But even if you haven't, it's a lot of fun. Um, amazing supporting cast. And um, it is an interesting romantic comedy because it has about four plot twists in it near the end. And so you keep think you keep thinking you know how the story is going to end, and then it shifts again. And so. Um, Anyway, and interestingly, and I don't think this is was chosen in any reason to connect, um, Marie, but you talked about Miss Novak and Shop Around the Corner, but in, in Down With Love, Renee Zellweger's character's name is Barbara Novak. I, like, but I think they said that that was more based around the actress Kim Novak, who was famous at the time. Mm. It's just kind of funny. Um, but yeah, so that's my recommendation is Down With Love. Um, it's super fun. And... Um, so, uh, listeners, thank you so much for hanging with us during our discussion of You've Got Mail. A belated happy Valentine's Day to you and, um, and or happy Galentine's Day for fans of Galentine's Day. Um, thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We love to hear from you. So if you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows or if you just want to get in touch with us, you can do that at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. Um, and we really do uh, read those emails, listeners. I um, just last week was exchanging emails with a listener who had uh, emailed in with some reading suggestions and some ideas for a future episode. So we absolutely pay attention to those communications. Um, to get the show notes for this episode or other episodes, you can check out Christian humanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Podcast Network, and Kristen Philippic is our publishing liaison. For Sarah Kluster and Marie Haas, I'm Katie Grubbs. Tune in in two weeks for an episode on um, awesome sci-fi heroine Sarah Connor. Until then, in Essentials Unity, in Non-Essentials Liberty, and in All Things Love.